Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 113, covering Michael Moorcock's The Jewel in the Skull. I'm Jeff, and with me today is that wolf mask wearing Grand Britannian Hoy. Hello. Ooh, I've hidden my actual <laughs> secret boar mask, but I'll pretend to be a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> and also with us today is the host of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy podcast. Uh, we've got with us today Menion, aka Rob. Rob, welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning or good evening. Absolutely. So, Rob, your um, your name on Twitter is Old Shabby Gamer. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm assuming you've been gaming for a while based on that handle. Tell us about your history with gaming. Well, I suppose I'm, I'm one of these people who played uh, in the mid-80s. And I probably played until about 94, 95 before dropping out. So, um, yeah, I, I missed out. I did a lot of some online gaming, some of the, the computer games, but I had a family and a job. And and mm -hmm. so I came back uh, just what, about three years ago, I suppose. Um, I just noticed a copy of the fifth edition Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook in a store mm -hmm. here in Japan, in, in Japanese. And, and I was just, I was like, wow, I was really blown away that, that, that such, a, such a game would be on sale here. And so I started to... It awoke a bunch of memories, and and obviously, you know, now I've got more time. My my daughter is growing up, and and you know, doing her own thing, and so I have time. So I thought, well, maybe I should start uh, socialising and doing things again, that aren't necessarily work related. Very cool. And what is your history with reading science fiction, fantasy, and horror literature? Well, I suppose it started around the same time, uh, probably before I picked up. Well, before I was given my first copy of The Hobbit, um, I, I, I was really interested in uh, Greek mythology and things like that. So that probably preceded everything, that, that interest in, in fairy tales um, uh, and mythology, because everybody has one of these books, right, with the pictures. And, uh, you know, um, so, yeah, that, that kind of mysteriousness came from really simple, simple beginnings. Now, Rob, I found a couple of things that were interesting. You had mentioned, I think I, you first came to my attention probably from Twitter, and you might have commented on our podcast, but you were talking about sort of Tolkien's um, representation of the dwarves and yeah. their uh, dwarves as sort of an echo, not a direct analog because he, he loathed that, but echo of sort of uh, the Jewish diaspora, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, exiled culture. And so that was really pretty interesting to me. And I'm sure other people may have gone through that, but that was the first time I'd ever heard of that. Um, yeah, I was really surprised myself. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I started um, rereading Tolkien a few years ago. Um, and I think, obviously, I read The Lord of the Rings and stuff, but uh, one of the books that took me a while to get into, but when I did, and I was probably only 12 or 13, was The Silmarillion. When I finally read through it, and I understood the, the pacing of the book and what he was trying to do with it. Um, it yeah, that, 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 that really blew me away. But um the cool thing about, I guess, yeah, the, the, I, I, I thought I was really impressed by the, what he had to say about um, the dwarves. Um, and he admitted on taking a lot from um, his his ideas, at least, of uh, uh, Jewish um, 
ideas or or um, traditions um, and working that in. Now, I don't know if that how problematic that is, and I'm sure there are areas that uh, will, will be uh, of concern to some people. But uh, he seemed to have a very positive uh, view of uh, the Jewish people and did actually defend them against uh, the Germans' uh, publishers that wanted to make sure he was uh, purely Aryan and so on back in the, I think, the late 30s. So it's it's of interest, I think. It's something worth following up and learning more about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, in, in line with that, was that uh, Tolkien a sort of recent rediscovery for you or is it something you'd just been living with for a long time, you know, in terms of your, your fantasy, you know, fantasy and science fiction reading? Oh, well, yeah, Tolkien, um, yeah, <laughs> how can I say? I suppose, you know, one of the first uh, introductions to fantasy that I had was through Tolkien. So The Hobbit didn't really blow me away the first time I read it, but uh, more recently, when I wrote, uh, did uh, reread it, I, it's, it had more of a, I, I found more in there, actually. I found much more in there than I did as a child, which is funny. Um, but The Lord of the Rings and the Ralph Bakshi animation of that, were really the first sort of um, gateways into sort of high fantasy. And that unfortunately colored a lot of my gaming in later life when I was actually trying to make up my own games and that. And it's sort of very much sort of hemmed it in and, and dictated how I thought about a lot of these ideas. And what are you reading maybe recently that you think might be of benefit to gamers, whether it's fiction or nonfiction? Well, of course, the, the jewel in the crown, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but no, um, I, I was reading. Uh, I re- reread the Ursula Le Guin stories and um, the Earthsea stories, and in fact, that had expanded since I last read them. So I think when I read them, there were only three um, books, the first three titles, and I, I read the complete one. And it had um, really it completed the circle. So it, she find, finally ends with bringing in more stories about the dragons and. And obviously giving a voice to the, the female characters, which have always been there, but they've been kind of underplayed. And she starts to really develop those characters through the latest stories, which I thought was really uh, uh, amazing, actually. A really interesting piece of work. And obviously low-key on the violence, which is quite different in, in fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the Earthsea is quite popular in Japan. At least there was a, a, a Studio Ghibli, uh, not particularly well done adaptation, but an adaptation of the Earthsea books right there. Yeah. Right, right. And other than the Earthsea series, are there any other books that you would recommend folks read for gaming inspiration? Gaming inspiration? I was kind of thinking about this because I know you do the section. Um, and I was thinking about, because I, I like mythology, I was thinking about the Odyssey. Uh, and then I thought about, um, obviously, the Silmarillion. The Mabinogian was one that popped up. So the, the Mabinogian, for those who don't know about it, is a, a collection of stories that was brought together, I guess, in the, in the, during the Celtic revival uh, in the late 1800s. Um, but the stories date back, I think they were first written down in the, the 14th or 15th centuries but they date back in oral tradition before that apparently so the, the, there's so many stories in there it's really not possible to explain what they're about but um, there's everything from stories like I think it's Kuluk and Owen where, where it ties together Arthurian uh, legends and also um, Irish the Irish cycles which are a much earlier uh, uh, creation but um, there's also a very tender side to it. So there's a there's a kind of there's an influence of Christianity possibly on in this this book, 
um, these stories, but there's also still a very strong pagan element. So you're, you're getting little, very strange perception or a very strange viewpoint jumping back in time and looking um, at these heroes and, and their trials, which aren't just about battles, they're about tilling fields um, and being kind to animals and uh, being being kind to men folk and women folk and, and so on. So it's quite, quite interesting. Mm. And I believe that was an influence on the uh, Lloyd Alexander, uh, you know, Terran Wanderer series as well, and, and books like of that ilk. So, yep. which is uh, great mid-grade reading. So, and what is this collection called again? It's called the the Mabinogian. Um, Mabinogian. Yeah, the Mabinogian. So it's a tale of Welsh. It's basically the the biggest um, collection of Welsh legends, um, and one of the oldest, probably collection of native British. Stories, I guess it would be, yeah, uh, because it's in Welsh originally and then translated in modern times into English. Very cool. Love this recommendation. Thanks, Rob. All right. So now we're going to take a look at which editions of the book we are working with. I have, of course, my janky ebook edition that doesn't even have any cover art of any sort, nor does it have a publisher's name, nor does it have a copyright date. So who knows what I'm working with? Um, but what are you working with, Rob? Well, um, unfortunately, I don't have my old Golantz version, so I, I'm on the uh, ebooks. I use Kindles nowadays, so I have mm. I have a Gateways Gateway Essentials version with a, a beautiful cover um, of a. It's quite quite psychedelic, actually. Some kind of I guess it's an ornithopter. It looks like a, a giant beetle, <laughs> flying beetle, uh, with somebody on, on top there. So it must be one of the ornithopters. Cool. And what are you working with, Hoy? Okay, I have the White Wolf hardcover in the 90s, which collects the first four books in the Hawkmoon series, and it has a John Zalesnik cover with Dorian Hawkmoon and Baron Meliadis in his Iron Wolf mask. Uh, so a lovely copy. It also has interior spot art from James Cawthorn, who was a frequent uh, collaborator of Michael Moorcock, and uh, a map of this sort of post-tragic millennium Europe. And um, Moorcock was... And Cawthorn were very close friends, and he considers Cawthorn's interpretation sort of the definitive uh, rune qu- uh, rune staff interpretation. And I also have the Titan collection of the black and white comics that Cawthorn did of the Hawkborn book. In there. Oh yeah, very nice. Yeah, same yeah. same cover there, same art piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a sort of weirdo insectoid ornithopter. Nice. And Hoy, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day? I do, but I believe Rob has a candidate. So go go for it, Rob. Yeah, my one was Trencherman. Trencherman. And I think this is from chapter two. And it right. says... And that's in reference to the Baron, right? It is, yeah. Baron. So there's a huge yeah. amount of um, exposition about the, the Count, Count Brass. Yeah, the Count, yeah. Count Brass. And uh, he's described... I don't know if you want me to read this or just to paraphrase. Yeah, go ahead. So yeah. it says, but those who knew the Count... Those who knew Count Brass well knew well enough that he was a man in every sense, a loyal friend, a terrible foe, given much to laughter, yet capable of ferocious anger, a drinker of enormous capacity, a trencherman of not indiscriminate tastes, a swordsman and a horseman without peer, a sage in the ways of men and history, a lover at once tender and savage. There's a little bit worry in there at the end, but that's Count Brass. So trencherman, right. trencherman. Apparently, because, yeah. Do you, do you have that? Did you choose that as well? That was not actually it was a very good candidate, and that was not one of the only ones that was mentioned. And I think it's funny because well, we'll talk about more how about Count Brass is set up in the book as opposed to Hawkman himself. 
Uh, Jeff had an excellent word, which was Mistral, which is that cold northwest wind that blows through the Provence and the Camargue every winter and actually drives people crazy because it can blow for like three weeks on end. Wow. Um, and there was a couple other good candidates from the group, our reading group from before. Uh, Ornithopter came up as a, did Orrery, but I picked one that only actually had came up once, but it was just such, a, such an unusual word that seems like a kind of word that Gary Gygax would pick. <laughs> so here it is. Lazar. Lazar, a poor or diseased person, especially one afflicted with the a feared and contagious disease such as leprosy. And I think it comes up in the chapter when Hawkmoon is in Londra. And uh, it probably sounds like maybe it's related to Lazarus, you know, so someone, you know, yeah. so, if, uh, um, but anyway, Lazar, it comes up once, uh, but it seems like a, a good term if you want to throw around all sorts oh, and you were crawling through the market and there were Lazarus around the edge. And, you know, so it's very, it's very uh, high gas in that way. <laughs> oh, no, not Lazarus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess we can head on over to the library. Uh, Rob, what did you think of the jewel in the skull? Well, it's the third time I've read it, I think. Um, I originally read it probably about 30, 30 years ago, I think, or, or, or more. Um, and I read it just last year. Uh, in fact, so again, yeah, reading it this time, um, it's it's a great story. Particularly the first two, it's divided into three books, uh, and the first two books are fast and furious and packed, just packed with all sorts of uh, pro, beautiful prose. Some of the descriptions of battle are uh, incredible, um, um, and, and there's a lot of humour from the, the the author sometimes, the way he's kind of playing with genres which I thought was curious. Um, and finally, the, the third part, which struck me last year, was that the, the third book seems to suddenly drop off or move into a completely different different pace. Um, and that seemed, that really kind of, I don't know, struck me um, as kind of discordant from what I've been building up before. It's almost like you reach the crescendo by the end of book two, and then it kind of goes off into this crazy, crazy sort of uh, quest. Uh, so, yeah, that was my my general impression, I guess. Nice. And Hoy, what was your general impression of The Jewel in the Skull? Um, I really enjoyed reading it again. I think the first time I read it was in the 90s, and I hadn't read it since then. Um, it was my friend uh, James's favorite Moorcock series. Um, and he was always, you know, like to joke about the flamingos and everything. Like that. And I think it's, it's, um, it's funny because the prose hangs together very well, but we know that Moorcock wrote this in like a fit of mad invention. Like he wrote like the first, a lot of the books in that era, like over like a, a course of a weekend. And I don't know if he was dictating to someone who was just like typing like, you know, like 800 monkeys just typing at the same time. Um, so it has that really propulsive flow, um, even more so than the Elric books. It feels very Burroughsian and, and um, Burroughs is sort of an undercredited influence on Moorcock. We tend to think of him as um, reacting to Robert E. Howard, and, and also almost of a piece of some of the other sort of experimental uh, British writers at the same time. I know he was, I think, believe he was friends with Ballard, J.G. Ballard, or at least knew J.G. Ballard, um, and a bunch of the other writers. And so this one really had, it was the prose was very straightforward, but also still quite beautiful. Like the descriptions of Londra as grotesque as they are, are still like really fascinating. And the Camargue is just, he really captures the Camargue. Like I had not been to Provence or the Camargue the first time I read the book, but then when I actually got there, I'm like, holy smokes, 
it is this is the place except that the flamingos wing aren't big enough to actually ride on but <laughs> 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 you know here's the white bulls here's the horsemen of the Camargue, here's the the towers of salt and you know the old castles and everything um so i think this is the most accessible i think of the sort of eternal champion series in terms of like being able to just dive right in some of the other ones like elric could be a turn off if you don't want to engage with an anti-hero and i think that for some reason, I've had a hard time trying to get into the quorum books, and I'm hoping to remedy that, you know, later on in this project. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoy this book. So, I guess I'm the only one here who hadn't read this book previously, and so far, all of my Michael Moorcock reading that I've done to this date has been Elric, so this is my first non-Elric Michael Moorcock. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I, um, unlike Hoy's friend James, I do not like this more than Elric. I do enjoy Elric more, at least so far. I've only read one of these books, and I, I have heard some people say that these books only get better. Um, but that said, I didn't enjoy it as much as, as, as much as I did Elric, but I had a great time reading it. The structure was interesting, the, the, the way that it was separated into these three different books, um, and the three books felt very different. You know, the first book was very much about Count Brass. Uh, the second book is very much about Dorian Hawkmoon. And then the third book is about bringing all, kind of all of this together. Um, what was also interesting for me is since the only Moorcock I've read so far are Elric books, all of the Elric books I've read to date have been either collections of short stories or self-contained novels. So this is the first time that I've read something that is very clearly the beginning of a series because it doesn't have like an ending, like a proper ending. Um, and that hadn't been my experience so far. So it was a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a letdown because I kind of wanted this. I, I, I kind of wanted a bow on this, but I, I understand why I don't get a bow. But overall, I had a lot of fun reading it. I thought it was really creative. I thought the characters were very fleshed out. I understood who the characters were. I thought the the world building is very strong. There's a there's a lot to love in this story. And I would definitely agree with Hoy that I was seeing a lot of Barosian influence. Specifically, like in the very beginning of the book, we have what um what what one of our patrons in our patron book club mentioned just kind of felt like a random encounter. But we have our random encounter with the Baragoon. <laughs> and that kind of like, so Count Brass is just wandering through the wilderness, runs into this thing, has this big epic fight with it. But then he says, if he had given the monster a fair fight, it was likely that he, and not the Baragoon, would now be lying headless in the mud. Yeah. And that felt very Barosian, very much like our hero is out there wandering the wilds, encounters something that is far more powerful than him, but through his brawn... Like for like twenty five percent brawn and seventy five percent wit, he is able to take down this thing and survive another day. That's right. Um, it, Brass is like a really interesting character, I think, because in, in many ways, and this has been pointed out before, uh, that he, he he is a much better hero heroic character than Hawkmoon. Hawkmoon is fairly, I don't know, at first at least, and this is perhaps <clears throat> intentional. Excuse me. He's um. Hawkmoon is very kind of without character. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's a little bit without character, whereas Brass is the perfect hero. If somewhat uh, um, getting on in years, um, but but he has this cruel side as well. He's a very much pragmatist, is Brass. Um, whereas you get the idea that Hawkmoon, perhaps not in when we first discover him, but he, he's an idealist and he's trying to change the world. Brass is. Mm -hmm. 
it, it has seen it all before. Uh, he's just trying to keep things balanced and keep people alive. Um, yeah, and, and I can understand why they they needed Hawkmoon to move the story. Uh, or sorry, more uh, Moorcock needed Hawkmoon to move the story on. But he he seems so, especially when we first meet him, he seems so um, kind of boring and wet. Actually, yeah, um, and sort of just empty. Uh, but that's obviously intentional, isn't it? And passive. He seemed, he's a very yeah, passive yeah, yeah. character in the beginning. Right. Like we, we understand that he was very much this heroic figure prior to the book beginning. But when we actually meet him, he has been defeated. Um, he has seen the Baron um, uh, disembowel his father in front of his townsfolk. Um, this is somebody who has been utterly defeated Um even like emotionally and psychologically defeated as well. So at this point, at the point that we meet um, Hawkmoon, he's just ready for his life to end and whatever whatever is going to happen next to him. Yeah. I think Moorcock is doing something very interesting here. I mean, a couple of things. One of the things that's very obvious is that he's making the villains Great Britain and the hero is German of all things. Right, yeah. that's just kind of obvious on the surface, and, and the great enemies of of Great Britain, like France, is the, you know the Camargue is you know the the good nation. Mm-hmm. But he's also um, writing this book in the context of the sort of heightening of the Vietnam War, uh, the various hot wars that are going around the edge of the Cold War, and this is Hawk Moon as a casualty of that, right? And it's sort of like rediscovering his humanity, breaking you know his affectless, but breaking through the sort of trauma of having been in, at, in war the whole time and then sort of rediscovering that there is something worth fighting for. Um, whereas Count Brass is both pragmatic, but he also enjoys doing what he does. He likes to, like he jumps in there to wrestle with the bull. He likes fighting the Bergoon. He's going to use his wits, but he's like a man who enjoys doing that. He's just like very much larger than life character. Whereas Hawkmoon is sort of um, both an idealist, but also an agent of, of necessity, someone who has to be called to to duty into action. Whereas Count Brass has, you know, Count Brass's reasons for inaction are slightly different than yeah. than Hawkmoon's are. Yeah. Right. So, so you mentioned this that he's been completely beaten, and I, I think yeah. it comes in in uh, on chapter five of of book two. So, Bo Gentle, who's a, this another beautiful character, is a type. I mean, he's a sagacious, older, uh, caring gentleman with an eye on on Brass's. Uh, a kind, a uh, protective eye on, on Count Brass's daughter, but uh, he, I think he basically noticed. He, he sort of diagnoses Hawkmoon as having PTSD. He, he, obviously, mm. they don't use those words, but he, he realizes yeah. that um, Hawkmoon says something like, "I do not know. I only know what I do." So he, he's he's kind of he's not able to sort of put any meaning into the world anymore. But he, he just he's just responding kind of automatically or passively, as you say, but yeah, he, he's definitely suffering from something. Um, he's also described as a stiff hero of Colm in the sense that he's unable to sort of show any, uh, follow the cues, the social cues that Yselda, the daughter of Brass, gives him. So she's trying, she's kind of coyly, I don't know if she's totally romantic originally, but she's trying to draw him out of his shell uh, in, a, in a kind sort of caring way, whereas yeah, Bo Gentle is the more, how should we say, he, he has the knowledge, but he doesn't have the ability necessarily here to help Hawkmoon. That's kind of jumping yeah. forward a bit. But I, I thought that was kind of, he plants that very, very casually almost, the, the mm-hmm. reason why Hawkmoon is 
the way he is. Yeah. And I think that now that you mentioned Yaselda, we didn't really talk about her in the book group. Um, she doesn't do much yet in this book. And I, do, I believe that she does grow in the later books. But there's still something interesting in there because um, she is very good and good natured. So and that's why she is not capable of seeing she's not stupid but that's why she's not capable of seeing through meliadus at the beginning right um and, and you know and meliadus initially strikes as a very romantic dashing figure in a way that Hawkmoon doesn't because he's so affectless right um and so that makes i think gives a little extra layer to meliadus too in his own way right mm-hmm. yeah and I also think we we learn a lot about the characters based on how they feel about Grand Breton. You know, so here we have Count Brass who who sees that this is the direction the world is turning. Grand Breton is taking over everything. And I think he sees kind of fighting against that as being kind of futile, um, recognizing that somebody's got to be in control. So he has kind of a fatalistic uh, a way of approaching it initially. Um and then we have, um, you know, Yaselda, who wants to see Grand Breton go down because she wants to see revenge for what she had to go through. Uh, Bo Gentle is very much aware of the cruelties and the atrocities being committed by Grand Breton and wants to see them stopped for what's good and what's right. Where Von Villach wants to go to war just because he misses war and wants to fight again. So each person has their own relationship with Grand Breton that tells us a lot about who these characters are. Yeah. I see, like, Bo Gentle, I've, I've written this down. He says something like, um, he thinks that the Grand Bretons are a plague and, and wish to debase all humanity. And he sees them and he says this the order they bring is superficial, the chaos they bring. Um, they bring destroys men's souls, and he goes further. He says, "Our passivity, our passivity, is acquiescence in their deeds." So there's a, it's almost like a nod back to the 1930s mm-hmm. with Britain's inability uh, or political decision not to, not to, um, well, not to intervene in the Spanish Civil War, for example, and and to let Hitler have his way in certain. Uh, quarters, but this this idea that e- e- evil is a thing, uh, and sometimes if you don't step in, if you don't say something, you're actually um, a party to what is mm-hmm. going on, which I thought was a really nice sort of a uh, thing for Moorcock to include here. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting things that um, Moorcock is exploring in this story. And I think one of the things that I also thought was was cool, I'm forgetting the name of the three-foot-tall giant. Oladon. Oladon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Love him. I love how, yeah. Yeah, how Oladon talks about how he was rejected by his parents, by his parents' people, and, and by his father's people, and by his mother's people, because he is a, um, a mix between... Um, what, what is he like? His, I think his father was a sorcerer and his dad was a giant and his mother was a giantess. Um, but because of that, he's been completely abandoned by both of his people. So we also have this character who is kind of between identities who, because of that has been rejected by both. So Morcock is doing some really interesting explorations of different ideas here that I think, uh, you, you, you don't often see in these kinds of works. Yeah. There's a sense of, there's a touch of humor there, you know, obviously he's, um, this isn't entirely serious, but there's also um, 
pathos i don't know there's um yeah humanity yeah yeah i mean he's a lovely character olodan and and we learn that he's he's the eternal companion uh, he's a i think there's a, there's a suggestion i don't know if it's in the book but they they meet and they instantly realize they they complement each other mm-hmm. you know they just end up going along on, on this adventure right? Uh, right um and so yeah we we learn he's he's part of the eternal companion to the eternal right. champion uh, and he's basically Moonglum. He's a he's a right. yeah uh, like like Moonglum in Elric. And that is such an important role to play. And I mentioned that in the book uh, club that the the companion is the, the character who most grounds the champion. Right, the the champion might have a love, uh, you know, that they're striving to return to, but the, the companion is the one who's always there. Can be the conscience, can be the the grounding to humanity or to the better sides of humanity that the champion sometimes uh, loses in their course of their quest. And it's funny because Oladon is not even, well, he's half human, I guess, but, you know, he's a, a dwarf giant. <laughs> you know? And that's just, that's a mad invention. Like he's a child of giants, but he's only three feet tall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Great. laughs> that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy things here. There's a lot of funny, um, really uh, psychedelic sort of uh, concepts that are thrown around here. Um, obviously, you know, all of them half giant. Um, almost uh the book could be completely ridiculous if it isn't the way if it wasn't for the way in which it's executed which is uh just the, the pacing and um yeah the, I, the 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 battle we haven't talked about the battle yet i don't know if that's something we you want to touch on but the the battle with the pink the pink flamingos fighting the yeah. ornithopters <laughs> and the technology the mixture of technology and fantasy which is something also we haven't talked about um at in a very natural blend um which would have been quite new to me, I think, when I first read this, that, that blend of yeah. sci-fi and fantasy. is very freeform, isn't it? He's just doing whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Now, when we look at the actual Appendix N, and we, we look at specifically what Gary Gygax recommends that we read by Michael Moorcock, he says, Stormbringer, Stealer of Souls, and the Hawkmoon series, especially the first three books. So basically, there's five books that he's recommending us read by Moorcock, and this is one of those five. Now, my question then, I guess I have two questions. One is, why do you think this is one of the books that he highlights? But also, speaking to this sci-fi fantasy mixture, do you think that that's part of the reason it's included? Or do you feel like it is included despite that? Um, We we know from a lot of the the pulp fiction um, that's included in the Appendix N, that there wasn't such a hard division between fantasy and sci-fi, but it's something that's yeah. kind of developed. That this division is something that developed later on through yes. an overreading, perhaps of Tolkien. Um, mm-hmm. um, so that I guess that's one thing. I, I don't know, Hoig, do you have any thoughts on this? I think there's a couple of things going on. I think um, this one we see very specifically, um, sort of like the tiers of villains. Um, as humanoid villains. I mean, there's a big discussion about whether or not we should have, you know, orcs and all those things that might they might stand in for. But here, yeah. all the villains, other than actual monsters, literal monsters, are humans, yeah. right? Um, but they're at they're depicted at different levels. I mean, uh, Baron Meliadus is clearly a very high-level fighter type. Um, who's the mad scientist? He could stand in for a wizard of some sort. And then you have this godlike figure, which is the Juan, Juan the God Emperor, um, and then you have all these orders of, of, um, you know, the guilds and each one of those could be a humanoid race. It could be an orc or kobold or whatever, but here they're humans with these boar masks or these yeah. mantis masks. And, um, 
you know, they're encountered in great numbers, but it's still, they're still really interesting, right? It's not just like, oh, I just killed another bandit. It's like, no, I killed a mantis warrior. And, you know, they, they talk in their weird clicking sounds. It's their private language that they have, right? Um, so I think it's a real masterclass in creating sort of like interesting villains at mm-hmm. different levels of capability or different interesting antagonists. So, I would agree with that. I, I also feel like um, when, when we look at, for example, one of the books that is also on the list is Changeling Earth, which we read recently. And I think it's interesting looking at these two books side by side, because in Changeling Earth and in this, we have a big mixture of um, science fiction and fantasy. Uh, it takes place in a theoretically um, post-apocalyptic future of our own Earth. Um, but also what I think this book does and what the Empire of the East trilogy does really well is it gives you a great roadmap of how your characters can have major influence in the way that the 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 way that the events of the world are unraveling. Um, it, like as opposed to people like um, Fafford and the Grey Mouse, or especially in the early stories, there's, their stories are very much about like we're having a wild adventure, but by the end of it, we're still just going to be drunk at the Silver Eel and kind of not going to have much to show for it. But I think, although Gary loved that aspect of um, sword and sorcery, I also think that with D and D, he really wanted to see the characters having a big impact on the way that the world is um, on, on the events happening in the world. And I think this is a great example of that. Yeah, I mean. If you have a world where, uh, in this case, I mean, we have Grand Breton, which is obviously uh, the British Empire, and Moorcock is writing this during the Vietnam War, I'm assuming. Um, but instead of um, put, putting like an America uh, or focusing on America, he looks at the, the British at himself, he looks at himself uh, yeah. and his own identity. And remembers and, and imagines history again, um, being repeating itself in the future with this empire spreading out once more. Uh, it mm-hmm. talks about the river of, I think it's the time. It's basically the Thames River, which is yeah. blood red color, and, and the colors he uses for the for these uh, mantis warriors and so on is they're all silvers and golds and blacks, and so you get the silver and black. You get these. Um, I, I got a very strong uh, Nazi image from mm-hmm. from the, the how he was describing the uh, outward appearance and and the precision, the technology of the Grand Bretons, which is obviously the technology and the sorcery are kind of very very similar in this. It's kind of difficult to pull them apart. So yeah. it, I, I don't know this this. Um, if you're in such a world where which is being torn apart, you can't just sit back on the sidelines like Brass really, really wants to do. Uh, as characters, if you're playing a role-playing game, I mean, this is just the perfect setup because, um, sure, you, you can do things that interest your character, but you're also going to be swept along to some extent by what's happening around you. Um, yeah. No matter how deep your character backstory might be, or how simple it might be, you're going to be swept along. Uh, and I suppose this is something that happens to people um, in, in times of, of trouble, um, whether it's a natural disaster or some uh, international uh, con- or conflict. Um, suddenly, heroes are born, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. don't, it's just not like I am the hero. These people are 
um, put into positions. Obviously, Quark Moon does have this background story, um, but you could easily write in a character um, using DCC or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and they just pop up. But through the natural flow of things, they are forced into situations which become uh, extraordinary, uh, and that's what this kind of this kind of world um, changing. Um, these event world changing events such as this evil empire uh, create a really fertile ground for for that, that kind of uh, storytelling right mm-hmm. and um you know this is of course part of the eternal champion cycle although some other stories were also sort of glommed on later that weren't necessarily initially set up as part of that but he's taking a sort of light hand but he's actually showing this is sort of the uh complement to elric elric is a champion of chaos right and here is hawk moon who's slowly starting to realize that he's a sort of a champion of law as is count brass count brass is initially again sort of neutral he's like oh i just want you know order um but and grand Bretagne offers order but then bojento is telling him no no but the order that they offer is really chaos underneath right it's about the striving for dominance for its own sake and what's interesting is here like sometimes people say oh you know more is against uh you know he's anti-authoritarian and all that which is true but he's saying here's he's showing what is the good side of law, which is the building of community, right? Hawkmoon never succeeds on his own. He only succeeds when he's part of something larger, when he's joined with Count Brass's people and the troops there who are loyal to Count Brass, when he meets Oladon, when he helps Queen Fra- Fraba. Um, everything he does, as mighty as he is, only succeeds as part of community or in service to something larger than himself. Right. And so that's the good aspect of law, as opposed to the sort of stultifying, top-down, uh, you know, very restrictive aspect of law. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I really like about Michael Moorcock's books is that they aren't they aren't as simple as they appear at first glance. I mean, this is a very uh, short book, 176 pages. There's a whole load of ideas f- f- thrown into there. But the, you do get the feeling that the person, the author behind this, has some really fascinating ideas and he's, he's able to see that matters aren't uh, black and white, that there's there's a lot going on here and, and he has a, a vision of different epochs. He's able to sort of look out um, and, and change his position, uh, his viewpoint uh, and see things in a different light and, and change the stories around. Uh, I've always been. I just it just fascinates me I, I, in that sense. Even when it's a, a simple pulpy story, I, you get something from well, very humanitarian that comes through in his writing, mm-hmm. despite all the violence and everything else. Now, one thing that might be worth um, chatting about is the Black Jewel itself. Now, for those who are listening who haven't read the story, essentially our main character Hawkmoon has been um, has been defeated by Grand Breton. And um, rather than being tortured to death for the entertainment of the nobles of Grand Breton, they've instead decided to implant this black jewel into his forehead, and they can see through the jewel. Uh, and they're sending him out here to basically take down Count Brass and kidnap his daughter. And Hawkman's like, fine, whatever, because like he's so passive at this point. Um, and then the rest of the story kind of goes from there. But I'm curious, Rob... Do you feel like having the black jewel implanted into the forehead of a PC is something <laughs> that can and or should be done in a game? Wow. Wow. How would you, how would I do that? I think I would 
sit back with a player and, and talk about it. How do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. Would you, yeah. and, and suggest various ideas. But I mean, if you force, if you force somebody into a position, they're not going to like it. Right. Um, and yet what a, what a fantastic uh, predicament to be in. So I, I think you need the player, you need player buy-in. Um, what yeah. I do in, in any situation where I'm making an arbitrary decision, I, I usually take a bit of time out and talk, talk to the players about it. Um, Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound very old school, but it, that's that's what I do. Just because it's it makes me feel more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I think it can be old school too, though. Like, uh, yeah. and Hoy and I were chatting about this in the Patron Book Club, and Hoy was talking about how you could do this as a TPK, um, as a way of dealing with the TPK. But also, I think you could do it as a way of dealing with a, an individual PC's death. If an individual PC dies, and you're like, "No, I didn't want him to die," you'd be like, "Okay, well, if you want." We can say he didn't die. Instead, he was captured by the the army and the the the, the, the people who you're fighting against. And what do you think about this idea? And then presenting it to them and saying if they're willing to go with it. Yeah. And if that player is willing to go with it, it's like he shows back up or she shows back up and like now has this thing in their forehead. And the other PCs are like, um, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That could be, that could be fun and interesting. Yeah. Uh, recently, we had a we had a conversation about uh, doppelgangers. Forgive me, if this is going is if this is going off the rails, but the the idea no. of a doppelganger is such a powerful monster. You can easily have yeah. just attack one of the players when they're sleeping, have them killed, have them replaced. What yep. what do you do with doppelgangers? How do you maintain these creatures? How do you keep them being terrifying? And um, so there's a you you have to, I think to a certain extent you have to well you can be overhand and just do. Well, this is my game. I'm the GM. Fair enough, you know. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't go that route. My per- personally, I, I would probably do, play. You know, basically have them meet, have a fight, a fair fight, perhaps. Uh, if they're going to lose, um, if it looks like they're going to lose, I would probably say, well, you know, this might happen. It might pan out badly. Do you want? Are you happy? for the players to sort of be alerted would you rather the players were alerted or are you happy for this to take to to actually end in death and your character and then play the doppelganger and yeah. start playing the doppelganger um but it's a tricky one and i think it's it's a case-by-case thing isn't it but the, the duel is a, a beautiful thing in this story uh, and the machinery the magical machinery is really yes. really well described it's super ominous. It's almost as ominous as the. It reminds me of the uh, bells, the black bells in the Philip Jose Farmer books of the mm-hmm. uh, the World of Tears series. Yeah, with the bellers. Uh, to your point about doppelgangers, so I could see doing something interesting whereby the original player character is gone. It's kind of like the ship of Theseus, right? So now you have this doppelganger who is, you know, playing pretending to be one of the PCs, but then maybe you can't bring back the original character. But what if they somehow hypnotize the doppelganger? into thinking it's the actual new PC and then it becomes essentially, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the original character, essentially like the original character again. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, so uh, it's very meta, but I think it's something yeah. that might be fun to play with. You know, again, it, it, as you say, it takes a lot of buy-in from uh, the player. So it's kind of a little bit advanced mode, but uh, I think it sure. should be a lot of fun. So Rob, what kind of games are you running these days? Um, well, the, the 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 original game that I started with the home group that I do in Osaka is um, was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons First Edition. Um, okay. This is because you know some of the original games I was doing uh, with the English speaking community were, were for Fifth Edition, uh, and it wasn't 
it didn't feel the same. Uh, it didn't feel the same. And obviously, I've missed out all the years in between. And so I wanted to try something else. So I thought, well, will people come if I if I make a game of this this old um, creaky sort of um, pro- edition? Will, will people come and play it? And they and they did. There was a lot of um, I think we had about six people coming in, from, you know, from all around the world, all nationalities. Um, so that was quite good. Um, we've since played a lot. We have played some fifth edition. We've we've played Star Wars, the uh, West End Games uh, edition, and we're hoping to get RuneQuest to the table. We did a bit of Call of Cthulhu, but we're hoping to get some RuneQuest to the table this year. So that's something to nice. really look forward to. Now, most of your gaming is done in English, or do you have any Japanese uh, gaming? Or yeah, well, before the pandemic, I um, I think initially. Yeah, the th- maybe the first group I joined was actually Japanese. And it was really hard because I didn't know the language of um, of fantasy, and I didn't know the terms, the gaming terms for all these things. So it was uh, quite quite challenging, and um, being able to tell a story or being able to, um, yeah, to to just the simplest things actually was quite completely new to me. I- I'm a translator uh, in my everyday life, but it's just a completely different. Uh, language for okay. me. Now you're talking about a very specific technical yeah, language. Yeah, it's, it's completely right, right. different. So, um, I, yeah, I, I played um, online and more uh, preferably I, I played face to face, which really helped with the communication because I was able to sort of relax more and, and use um, cues from other players a little bit easier, more easily. Um, but it is difficult when you're not uh, a native speaker of the language. And, right. Um, well, and I imagine also more than half of our communication is body language and it's also sort of very culturally specific body language that we very hard to see via zoom whereas yeah, when you're yeah. at the same table you yeah. can actually sort of pick up on yeah yeah well one of the things one of the things about the um the, the japanese groups when i was playing with them uh, i played with like an older guy and he, he made up his own stuff he, and it was very very kind of like old school it was like oh, this, this is the stuff he, he had his own homebrew stuff um we did an adventure inside the whale. We had an avail- a whale that swallowed us, uh, and we had to go, go through its like insides and stuff, like little rooms and things. So he, 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 <laughs> cool. it was very um, Gonzo, and I was really surprised because a lot of the the things he was doing were very like early eighties, um, yeah. early eighties American D and D, and he was doing that in, in Japan. Some of the crazy ideas we we got stampeded by sheep. <laughs> like a, a big flock of sheep, just crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, really dangerous dungeons, um, and I, it was difficult for some of the younger players, I think, because um, it was easy to die. You had to be very careful. But it, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the the underlining thing that I got from that was that a lot of us share a lot of the same language, a lot of the same uh, interests, um, regardless of that culture. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of inventiveness and things that really match up well with uh, what, what we can see in any country that's that's kind of fun you know it's very good to be able to play you know to, with people from different countries and then while you were reading this book were you finding things that you're like oh this would be fun to steal for for this D adventure or maybe when i do rune quest maybe i'll steal this thing were any of those kinds of things popping up for you well i think the obvious thing would be the machinery you know the yeah implanting things like that but what i got from it more was the the way that alignment is used, the, the way that <clears throat> the way that alignment is used in this, it, it, it's not cut and dry. Um, so yeah, we've got this confusion over law and chaos, and they're not. Ne- neither one is necessarily a good force. 
Um, and we know that um, Count Brass is trying to maintain a balance. He sees, you know, um, increased uh, unification within Europe uh, as being a, a force for good, but he doesn't take into account what's actually happening through the Grand Britannian um, advance. So the neutrality, the question of what is neutrality, uh, is is brought to the front here as well. So, like Moorcock's idea of the the rune staff, which isn't really described very well here, but this sort of the central axis and the two scales of law and chaos as being this kind of this cosmic huge cosmic balance, um, is um, is fascinating. And the way that we can friends are friends and enemies can switch, and what is good and bad can be uh, very I don't know. Uh, I guess. Subjective. Now I feel really basic that the thing that I want to steal is writing flamingos. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. that, that that's why yeah, I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say yeah, that. But fire lances, cool. fire lances, and riding flamingos. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting you mentioned alignment, uh, Rob. So, do you feel, for example, that uh, since you've also played AD and D, that in fact that D and D would be better served with either no alignment system, the nine uh, alignment. Uh, which almost becomes a behavioral, it's not as cosmic, and then the, the traditional sort of law and chaos, uh, just the three-point alignment system, which is um, does not necessarily dictate behavior, it sort of dictates sort of cosmic affiliation. It's a major decision. Um, I, I think, I, I like, if I'm playing AD&D, I like the nine-point alignment system, but it is a pain, a real pain to manage. Um, I prefer the three-point alignment system of just law, chaos, uh, neutrality um i would be happy just to get rid of it um i would i mean good and evil i don't think that's where i'm at at the moment i can see a lot of very interesting stories you know a lot of our cultural heritage comes from the the, the com- competition between good and evil but i don't think that's something that really interests me at this point um Sorry, was that an answer to the <laughs> question? No, it is. I mean, and I think it's interesting that you're looking at RuneQuest now because RuneQuest is about affiliations, yeah. but they're not necessarily about law and chaos. They're about your clan, your tribe, your specific religion. Yeah, it's about um, your runes. So, and the runes are um, the cosmic forces. They're kind of like the building blocks, the atoms of the universe, of the cosmology, and, and they tie you to deities to a certain extent or beliefs or ideals. Uh, and the more you go down that path, the more beholden you are to those powers. So it's a kind of like a double-edged sword, um, which is great food for thought. And it, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, they're all good, but you need obviously you need everybody in the group to buy into these things. So, uh, but I do, I do take. I don't know if umbrage is the right word, but I, I do think that uh, Tolkien, the idea of Tolkien having a, a clear good and evil is not. The case, I, I think, um, the way Tolkien does it was also, also very interesting. Particularly if you if you dig into the Silmarillion, um, and, and some people have recently po- pointed out that a lot of the elves, the elves are actually one of the biggest forces of evil right, <laughs> in Middle Earth. Uh, Auto genocidal, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a bunch yeah. of other things. And yeah, they're um, very and and you do get the sense that particularly in his later years, that Tolkien is starting to look back at his life, his experience in the First World War. Um, and the some of the things that happen in, in history, and seeing how um, how difficult these things are, how 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 much grey there is, and how it really is difficult for ordinary, uh, even immortal elves, um, to to really understand the world and 
uh, and to keep clear of of evil that evil is a yeah is a difficult defined thing but freedom i think is he's more interested in in questions of freedom but of course, sorry, this is not about talking. This is about Murakaku. But even in Murakaku, though, you have these moments. I was just saying, uh, Jeff, the only other thing I was going to say that we should steal, I never got to in the book club, is that we should have more scenes with heroes lounging around in uh, warm, fuzzy robes. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, that happens when Hawkmoon shows up to the Camargue. Obviously, when uh, Count Brass has, def- has defeated the Baragoon and returns to the castle and is taking off his armor, washes, puts on a warm, fuzzy robe and eats all the food, you know? So just like... Um, the sense of sort of the 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 numinous ordinary, right? And that's what the hobbits excel at, right? And that's mm-hmm. so that's my linkage to uh, here. It's like <laughs> that 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 people are wanting to return to a numinous ordinary, yeah. and that is sort of like the greatest good that you can sort of do if it does not become completely inward looking. And that's the fa- that's the failure of the hobbits, right? Because they're very parochial. Yeah, right? is it, is it and, the and failure the, of brass as well? Because we've got right, this we've got this who on this emperor immortal emperor who's like a he he believes that people should he wants Hawkman to share in in part of the destiny of the greatest race ever to emerge on this planet. I mean, how terrifying right. is that? But right, um, that's the true evil that Hawkman sees, but he's unable to communicate until later on when when the beautiful characters of Yselda and and uh, the what's his name? Sorry, Bow Gentle. Bow Gentle. What a Bo name! Gentle. How right. Dickensian, uh, Bow Gentle, right. and they uh, they tease out from him. These right. things later and, on, and that, that's even why Meliadus wants to essentially seduce um, Count Brass, right, into this becoming and co-opt him into this world, rather than just like say, "Oh, here's a potential threat. I need this guy because he's useful to me, and he's you know, he represents something that is no longer this sort of uh, the Grand Bretagne is, is incredibly powerful, but it has a lacks a certain vitality." Uh, Jeff has. I just want to say that we are uh, starting to run out of yeah. time, so I was curious, Rob, if you had any final thoughts about the Jewel in the Skull. Um, it's a great story. I mean, it, it's just so short, but it's just absolutely uh, jam-packed with ideas. Um, it's worth a read if you haven't read it. Um, um, I would also plug the whispering, the whispering swarm, which is the the work. The second part is probably in being completed at the moment. Uh, this is by My- Michael Moorcock as well. So, the whispering swarm is is a crazy, crazy book, um, and it's part autobiography. Uh, part fantasy and it's basically Moorcock is an eternal champion and jumping into these different personas he's moving around London going into slightly different dimensions and stuff and it's a weird weird story but it's I really really enjoyed it oh very cool and Rob are you working on anything right now that you would like folks to be aware of no, really, no. Um, I, I I engage in um, a number four. I mean, I do my podcast, which is very much a ramble cast. Um, I, I I do some writing for Flipping and Turning, which is a free zine that's focused mostly on uh, first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it, yeah, it's entirely free, downloadable. So um, that's something we do. But other than that, yeah, I'm just the, an ordinary guy that uh, tries to sort of work with others to build up little communities and where we can sort of have a bit of fun and talk to people. Cool. And I currently see that your pinned tweet is about the Osaka Adventurers Union. Is that a thing that's still going on? <laughs> it that is. You want to plug? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Osaka Adventurers Union, if you're in the Kansai region, so if you're, I'm in Kyoto, but um, if you're in any of the cities around Osaka, yeah, uh, come along. Yeah, um, we meet very regularly, had the same players now. It's almost been going on for three years. Uh, and Cool. And yeah, we've got a very steady uh, set of players and it's a friendly community that plays, is willing to try 
different styles of adventuring. So yeah, come along. It's uh, open to all in, in English, <laughs> in English. <laughs> and if folks want to find you online, how can they do that? Well, I am the old shabby gamer. I'm not that old, but I am fairly shabby. I'm the old shabby gamer on Twitter. And I can also be, uh, yeah, my, you can contact me um, through, through Anchor, which is a podcast hoster. And I am, uh, yes, uh, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi, as already stated by Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Perfect. Uh, and Hoy, where can folks find us? All right. Yes. If you uh, want to give us some feedback, you can always email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? If you would like to show us your support, please, please, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix n book club. We would like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. I'd like to say thank you to Andrew Cairns, Sean P. Kelly, William Souter, Andy Action, Justin Hamilton, Noah Green, Adam Stiers, and Solomon Foster. Thank you so much for your support. Our patrons are able to join us before we record for our patron book club. And today we were joined by Rick Byrne, Robert Coleman, Dan Alexander, and Brandon Cruz. We had a fantastic oh, conversation. Oh, and Adam Styers as well. He was a late, late addition, so I forgot to add his name to the list. But yes, Adam Styers as well. Thank you, Hoy. And also our patrons get to vote on what books we're going to be covering. And when this episode drops, we are going to drop our poll for... <clears throat> and when this episode drops, we are going to drop our poll for episode 123. And the theme for this one will be from the pages of Dragon Magazine. So they will all be things that started off in Dragon Magazine. So your options will be Fritz Leiber's The Knight and Knave of Swords, Elsprague de Camp's The Wall of Serpents, Gardner F. Fox's Nile of the Far Travels Collected, or Andre Norton's Quag Keep. Those are the ones you get to vote for if you are a patron of our show. So for as little as $1 a month, you can show us your support and you can be involved in all of these things. Um, okay. Am I forgetting anything, Hoy? Upcoming shows. Yes. And our next episode will be episode 114. It will be Declare by Tim Powers. And then we will be covering Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So we have some fun stuff around the corner. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yes, thank you so much, guys. It's really nice. I mean, I'm, I'm nobody special, but I love the show, and it's really nice just to get involved and, and uh, chat about the, the things that we enjoy. Rob, it's a real pleasure to finally get the chance to talk to you, so it's an honor. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>